0: In 2006, there was a survey done of 18 to 25-year-olds. These 18 to 25-year-olds, the only thing that they had in common is that they were not Christians. Uh, And before we even get into the results of that survey, let me just say that this survey is almost 10 years old now, but I can't imagine that these numbers have gotten better. Uh, I am assuming that, and you may have a different opinion after you hear some of these numbers in a few minutes, but over the last few years, the types of conversations that have been taking place, I would assume, drive these numbers to be worse than even what we're going to see on the screen, than to be better than what we're gonna see on the screen. But in 2006, this survey was done and asking 18 to 25-year-old non-Christians, what is the thing that you think of? What's the first thing you think when you hear the word Christian. When you hear the word Christian, these 18 to 25-year-old non-Christians, what's the first thing you think when you hear the word Christian? And 91% of them said that their first thought was that Christians are anti-homosexual. I think that number's probably worse now than it was in 2006. 87% said that they think Christians were judgmental. That was the first thing that they thought of When they heard the word Christian, 85% said that they thought Christians were hypocritical when they heard the word Christian. And 75% said that they thought when they heard the word Christian, they thought, yeah, those people are too political. I'm not just cherry picking things here. Those are the top four responses of thousands of 18 to 25-year-olds who are not Christians when they are asked, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word Christian? Anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, and too political. Now these four things aren't necessarily great things, but here's what I want us to do before we jump into this idea that maybe those are, that's bad news, that's, that's terrible numbers. Here's what I want you to think about when you hear those phrases, Nothing in those numbers say that those 18 to 25-year-old non-Christians disagree with Christianity. Nothing in the numbers say that they are offended by what Christians believe. Nothing in those numbers necessarily say that they have a problem or don't understand the tenets of the Christian faith. They aren't offended by what Christians believe. They are offended by Christians' tone. If you think about it, Because they're not saying, hey, I disagree with this. I don't think God's the only God. I don't think Jesus was the son of God. They're not saying, hey, when I read the Bible, I don't think it's real. They said, when I think of the word Christian, I am not confronted with the topics that they talk about. I'm confronted with the tone in which they talk about those topics. And you don't have to watch the news very much. You don't have to look around the landscape of our culture to understand that the things that get headlines are Christians that take a certain tone. Now, over the next few weeks, as we talk about tough topics, here's some of the things that we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about poverty. We're going to talk about racism. Yeah, right here in the South, we're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about judgment. Those are some pretty tough topics. Now, as Trevor mentioned, if you've got questions during this series, maybe you heard something sometime back some time ago, or maybe you were watching the news, or maybe you saw something on Facebook, or maybe you've always wrestled with this question, I encourage you to email or to text that question in. We're going to try to answer these questions throughout the series, but I encourage you to do that so that you can kind of say, hey, I want to make sure that I'm on the same page. I understand something. Or maybe you have a tough question that you're not sure has an easy answer. We wanna to try to help wrestle with that with you. So we're gonna talk about these things over the next few weeks. Today, we jump right in. I mean, we jump right into the messiness. And today we talk about the public square. And when I say public square, what I mean is I'm talking about that place where our faith and our politics, our faith and the marketplace, our faith and those things in that public life come together. Now, I went to, to college to be a lawyer. Um, I love law. I love government. I was really looking to potentially use law to go into public office, so I love politics. Like, I can sit and discuss it and debate it. Some of my favorite television shows and movies of all times were kind of centered in the White House or in Congress or in Washington. I mean, I just love that kind of thing. I, I should have brought it today, but when I was a youth pastor several years ago, People had t-shirts and sweatshirts made that said like Isaac's 2016 um, because they were just raising money. They were doing a fundraiser. But uh, for me, like it was something my grandmother still thinks one day I may run for president. I've told her, you know, that that's not going to happen. But you know, you know how grandparents are. They kind of hold on to those dreams for you. Um, My kids' grandparents still believe they're going to be in the NBA, but they're about yay tall. So, uh, you know, that's how grandparents do. But man, Politics is something, you want to get somebody really riled up, you talk to them about their faith, you want to get them really riled up, you talk to them about their political persuasion, and if you want to get them really wild, riled up, try to f- merge those two things into one conversation. Try to figure out a way to take faith and politics and put them into one conversation. But think about what I just said about the 18 to 25-year-olds. The fourth thing, 75% of the thousands of 18 to 25-year-olds, the first thing that they thought of when they heard the word Christian is that Christians were too political. Now that may surprise some of you because you go, I'm not political at all. I didn't even vote in the last election. I don't know who's running. I, maybe you're not political at all, but the perception of Christianity is that Christians are too political. So if you've got a Bible, flip with me today to an Old Testament book. It's the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to tell a lot of the stories of the first six or seven chapters of Daniel, but we're going to look at some scriptures throughout this story and throughout this text. But the book of Daniel is in a context that I think is really interesting to us in present culture because you have the story of a group of people of faith. You have the children of Israel, these Hebrew people that are God's chosen people, and they have been captured they are now under the rule of the Babylonians. They are under the rule of a group of people who don't believe like they believe, who don't do things like they do, who don't worship the way that they do. And so what we see in the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 is that King Nebuchadnezzar he um, has taken the kind of the cream of the crop out of these hebrew people and he has brought them to babylon and he has brought them in so that he could indoctrinate them into the ways of the babylonians he could kind of get them into the culture he could teach them their people they could teach them the ways of the babylonians so that eventually he could turn them loose in leading their own people but leading them in the way of the Babylonians. And so we see that. And some of the characters that we're going to be um, kind of exposed to over the first few chapters are people that you may be familiar with. One of them is Daniel. Uh, another uh, of them uh, is Shadrach, another is Meshach, and another is Abednego. Now, one of my favorite stories as a parent is when my kids were trying to learn those names. They, like, heard them in kids' church, and so they were trying to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And and it's, I can't repeat some of the things that they said there because some of those names didn't come out as biblical. But those are not the only names that those... Four young men were known by. Their their names that they were given were Belteshazzar, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these are names that you might have known, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So these are different names. Whichever, you know, group of names that you might have known them by, these are stories, these are people that we're going to be exposed to over the first few chapters in the book of Daniel. So what we see in Daniel chapter one is that we see that these young men, along with others like them, who were the cream of the crop, they were the smartest, they were the brightest, they were the the, the best looking, they were the people that the Babylonians had looked at and said, these can be the leaders of the people as we indoctrinate them and we teach them our ways. And so they bring them to Babylon and the plan is for them to feed them the things from the king's table. They're going to eat the the best of the meat of the land. They're going to eat the best of the the, the fruit of the land. They're going to drink the best of the king's wine. They're going to be given the best that comes from the king's table and what we see here in in verse 8 of chapter 1 is a very interesting statement so Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 this is what it says but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself now here's what's important for me and I wrote this down and kind of underlined it but when we are confronted with a situation in the public square it's not always important, as important what we say publicly as it is what we resolve within ourselves privately. When we are confronted with a situation in the public square, and again, this can be in the marketplace, this can be in some political arena, this can be in some place where we are confronted with something that potentially could cause us to compromise somewhere publicly. It's not always as important what we say publicly or even what we do publicly as it is what we resolve in our hearts privately. It doesn't even say, before Daniel even addresses the guy that's in charge of the feeding program, it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He resolved in his heart. And a lot of times what we see, and this is important for all of us, but especially for students, a lot of times what we see is that compromise, when we compromise ourselves, it is never the first step, right? compromise is not, like if somebody walked up to you today and they said, hey, I want you to compromise who you are. I want you to do this thing or that thing. I want you to go steal $100,000. Like, what's my cut? But no, 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 you would say, no, no, I'm I'm not going to do that, right? Because we're not going to compromise. I say, hey, I want you to go and ruin your marriage. I want you to go and do this. I want you to, to, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But what we see is it's a slippery slope of smaller decisions that cause us to end up in a place where we have completely compromised who we are. And what we see here is there is a resolve in Daniel that says, I'm not even, like, they're trying to indoctrinate me. Before I ever let them get to my mind, I'm not going to let them get to my heart through my stomach, right? Because, like, I like to eat. And if, uh, you know, I don't know, somebody in charge said, hey, you want to eat the best steak in the land? I'm going to have a little difficulty saying no to that. Like, I, I mean, if, if it's like, hey, do you want to go eat the fruit plate or do you want to have the filet? Like, unless that's like, you know, eternity hangs in the balance there, like, I'm thinking filet, right? And if it's a side of a blooming onion, like, I'm okay with that, right? I got a, I got an amen over here. Now we're all going out back for lunch. But but Daniel, there's something about this that he recognizes that is larger than just the choice of what to eat. He, see, he resolves here, I'm not going to defile myself. And so then he goes, listen to this, and he asks. He doesn't go and hold a press conference and say, We, the Hebrew people, will not defile ourselves. We will not eat the filet. We are going to eat fruits and vegetables. He doesn't say that. He goes and asks with humility the guy that's in charge, and he says, Hey, will you help me not to defile myself? That's important. That's very important because here's what I think. Here's what they did. Eventually, this guy gives in. Like, he was afraid for his own life. He says, listen, if I do this, I could be put to death myself. But eventually, Daniel says, hey, here's what we'll do. You let those guys eat all the best stuff. You let us eat fruits and veggies and and water, and we won't have steak. We won't have wine. And then in 10 days, you compare us. This is where we get the idea of a Daniel fast. He's eating vegetables there and water. He says, you let us do this. You let them do that, and you compare us in 10 days. And the guy finally agrees. He says, okay, we'll see what happens. And then in 10 days, guess what happens? Daniel and those guys were in better shape. They looked healthier. They had more energy than the guys that had been eating from the best of the king's table. Because here's the principle that I think is important for us. And man, this is going to hit some of us the wrong way. But sometimes you can compromise with the authorities without compromising yourself. Sometimes you can compromise with the authorities without compromising yourself. Now, I'm not saying to compromise, don't defile yourself, but there may be a way for you to make sure that they get what they need, but that you are true to who you are. Daniel says, listen, I'll stay in your court here. I'll stay in the feeding program, but I want you to help me not to defile myself. Maybe there's a conversation you can have with your boss. Maybe you wouldn't have to work on Sundays, but you would work extra time throughout the week if that's your issue. Maybe there's a way that you can lead the team without participating on the team because of some places that the team is supposed to go. Maybe there's some things that you can do. Now, sometimes there's a time to take a stand, and we're going to read that in a minute, but sometimes you just go, no, no, I I can actually work within the system here and make sure that they get done what they need to get done, but I can do so without defiling myself. Sometimes you can compromise with the authorities without compromising yourself. Later, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of the land, he has a dream. It's interesting to me how in the Old Testament narrative, there's so much about the dreams of people in authority that allow for God's people to be raised up. We see that in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. But here we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he calls together all the people in his nation who tell him what dreams mean. They help him to, you know, help him and others to see what the things of the mysteries of the universe are all about. And all of them come to him, and Nebuchadnezzar does something pretty interesting here. Instead of saying, here's what my dream was, now tell me what it means, he says, no, 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 I want to see if you guys actually know what you're talking about. So not only do I want you to interpret my dream, I want you to tell me what my dream actually was. So they're just, I mean, they're just shooting bond here. He's trying to see if they're really tapped into the, the things of the mystics or whatever that they claim. He says, no, 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 you tell me what I dreamed and what it means. They couldn't do it. Obvious. I mean, they, they, there was, they even said, and this is Jeremy's paraphrase, but they said, nobody can do that. Like, what you why don't you, they, they come back and they why don't you tell us your dream and then we'll tell you what it means? He's like, no, 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 no. If you are who you say you are, then you tell me what I dreamed and you tell me what it means. And so then he said, nobody can do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, then kill them all. You kill everybody who claims to be able to interpret dreams. You kill everybody that says that they have some power or they can tap into the mystics. You, they can read the stars, read the universe. You kill every one of them. And while that is being carried out, Daniel, when the guy's coming to like deliver the news, like, hey, you're going to be put to death, he says, no, no, you know what? I, I actually, I think I can help. And so the guy takes Daniel up to, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's this interesting conversation between the two of them, and Daniel actually agrees with the king's mystics. He says, you're right, they're right, nobody can do here on earth what you're asking them to do, but there is a God who can not only interpret your dream, but he can tell you what you dreamed. And so there's this conversation between Daniel and between King Nebuchadnezzar, and so Daniel actually tells him what's going on. And that helps Daniel to be raised up in power and he gets stature in the kingdom there. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get get power and stature in the kingdom there because of God's favor on their life. They, they were able to compromise within the system, work within the system without defiling themselves. And now they're in a position of influence where God's able to use them to speak truth into King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar even says, hey, the God that you pray to, the God that you're talking about, like he's the true God, he's the king of gods, he's the Lord of lords, he is the one who is over all the things that we've even been worshiping. So God raises them up in influence. And then we see something in chapter three. It's like after King Nebuchadnezzar makes this declaration, you know what he does? He does what any good king would do. He builds this humongous statue about himself. This gold statue, this gold idol. And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Every time you hear the music, like there's a list of incredible long, incredibly long instruments. Anytime you hear this music and it begins to play, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop what you're doing and I want you to bow down towards this statue, towards this idol of me, and I want you to worship it. Well, there's a problem, obviously, for people that are worshipers of God. Is we, we can't do that. There's something that evidently happens in their heart because we have no record of a press conference where they said, no, we will not do this. I dare you to you know, persecute us for our religious beliefs or we'll sue you. And there's you know, lawyers and things that will you know, defend us in your court. No. The music plays, everyone bows, and they don't. They took a stand. They decided that this was a moment where they couldn't work within the system because this is something that would cause them to betray their faith and their obedience in God. So this is not an instance where they tried to work with the system. This was an instance where they knew that they had to stand up against the system. There was something here that was different than the the feeding program. Okay, now this is something different. And we read here not so much about Daniel, but we read here about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what happens is that word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, you know those three guys that you elevated into leadership? Listen, when the music plays, they don't bow. He brings them to him and he gives them another opportunity to respond and he has a conversation with them And he says, listen, here's what's gonna happen. If you don't bow, you're gonna get thrown into the fiery furnace and he is mad and he wants to make sure that everybody knows he's in charge, he's the king, he's the ruler, it's his image that everybody should worship, he's the God, he is the most important. But when they stand up, they don't just stand up on their own. Here's what they stood up on in verses 16 through 18 of Daniel chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter which has got to just tick the king off, if we're being honest. Says we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, like if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sometimes you can compromise with the authorities without compromising yourself. But sometimes you have to stand up. And standing up against earthly authority should only be done when you are confident in the heavenly authority to do so. Standing up against earthly authority should only be done when you are confident in the heavenly authority to do so. And here's what I mean. Those boys were committed to taking a stand if it cost them their life. This is not just arguing politics here. This is not just watching the news and going, no, I disagree with that. I'm not doing that. This is saying, no, no, no. If this costs me my life, this is a non-negotiable. I think that's where we've gotten off track a little bit in our culture, is that there are some things that we should be holding with a closed fist. We should say, hey, here's some things about our belief in God and our faith. Here's some things about Christianity. Here's some things that we will not compromise. It's a closed fist. We refuse to open this up. We refuse to let anybody tell us anything differently. Because this is what God's word says. This is what we believe. There are other things that we do and other things that we believe and other ways that we operate that are in an open hand. The ways that we do church when we gather. It's about a methodology. There are some sacred things that we do and there are other things that we do because we enjoy doing them. They're open-handed. And sometimes in the church we take things over here and we put them over here. And we say, no, 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 if you don't do it this way, then it's not true religion. Like if you don't do it the way it was done in the church that I grew up in, it's not true. It's some kind of watered down gospel. And we've accidentally put some negotiables into the non-negotiable category. We do that in our politics. We do that in our lives. We do that in our business. When we say there are some things that are non-negotiables and there are some things that are negotiables, but the things that we are willing to slide on, maybe they should be things we actually fight for. And the things that we refuse to give an inch on maybe are just personal preference. If you stand up against earthly authorities, That's fine, but make sure that you are doing so under the authority of heaven, under the truth of God's word and not just something that someone told you once. Make sure that you know that's actually what God's word said and not just what somebody said some time ago. Make sure that this is something that you are willing to literally lay down your life for and not something that someone persuaded you of once as they stood behind a podium in a debate. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, 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 we will not bow, not because we don't like this image you've created. We won't do this because it betrays God. There are times that you can work within a system, and there are times that you have to stand up against a system. Now, here's the reality of the story. They said, but if not, our God will deliver us. And guess what? In this story, that's exactly what happened. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. You know this story. It was seven times hotter than it was originally supposed to be. The guys that even took them down into the furnace died themselves because it was so hot. And you know the story. Three of them go in. And then eventually they go looking to see, you know, all that they've died. We want to confirm it. And now there's four of them walking around in the fire. And they start counting, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, wait, 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 didn't we just throw three guys into the fire? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. One, two, three. Here, come look at this. One, two, three. They're like, okay. So Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he's like, hey, get out of there. Come out, come out, come here, and they have a conversation again. There's another conversation. It's, it's not been done in such a way that conversation can't continue. And we see that God was delivering them and Christ was walking around with them in the fire. And we see that the spirit of God protected them and no hair was singed, no clothes were burned up. Like this is the supernatural thing. But did you hear the resolve in their heart that said, even if that's not what happens, we're willing to die. Like we're willing to take a stand here because this is a non-negotiable. This is something that we will fight for Now, you might read that story, and in present-day context, you go, man, they were being so persecuted. No, they weren't. They were being punished. They weren't being persecuted. They were being punished. There's a difference. Punishment is the act that comes after disobedience. If you've got kids or you ever were a kid, hello, um, you know what I'm talking about. When you disobey, you receive punishment, right? Sometimes we like to label punishment as persecution. Here on earth, if you disobey earthly authority, you're probably going to be punished. And there are plenty of present stories in the news that bear this out. And we like to label that as persecution because it's about the faith that they stood on. But here's the problem. You know your rationale for disobeying. Not everybody does, but your rationale may not be any better than anybody else's rationale here on earth. If somebody says, no, I'm disobeying because of this, I don't really care why my kids disobey. I just know they disobeyed. And so I've got to punish them here on earth. There is punishment for disobedience. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow, you will go into the furnace. And guess what? He kept his word. What did we want him to do? Did we want him to go, no, you know what, I really admire your faith and your convictions. And I... He's not about the heavenly authority. He's not about the kingdom of God. He's about earthly authority and he's about his own kingdom. And so when we hear that phrase of persecution, I want us to be careful that we are labeling things correctly. The idea of persecution is hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. Now, Christian persecution or religious persecution takes place everywhere in the world, including the United States. But persecution is not about when we get punished for disobeying. Persecution is when someone specifically identifies religion or a political persuasion or race or something else as the only reason that we're being punished. The only reason that something bad is going to happen to us, it's like, oh, you're a Christian? Then you go to jail. That's persecution. That happens all over the world. But if it says, okay, do this job. No, I refuse to do it. I know I'm refusing to do it because, hey, it's my own faith basis. No, okay, well, then you're going to go to jail because you're not doing your job. That's not persecution. That's punishment. There's a difference. Now, again, you know your heart. You know why you chose to do those things. And I'm not saying that your punishment is always going to be fair, but we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not established on the true center, the true value of the heavenly Father who loves us and wants the best for us. We're subject on earth to a kingdom that is just kind of making it up as they go along. And so sometimes we are not going to receive proper punishment, but disob- disobeyment will always always receive punishment and that is not always persecution now over the next few chapters in daniel what we see is we see this incredible transition of power it would be like if the president got out of office and the new president came in and that president died and then there's a new president they don't even give it to the vice president they just give it to a whole new guy In just about a chapter and a half, we see this transition happen. It really comes as the culmination of another dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And then not only Nebuchadnezzar, but Belshazzar, he has a dream. And so we see this transition. And exactly what he was told was going to happen is exactly what happens. And he dies the same night he receives the interpretation of that dream. And now there's a new guy in charge, and his name is Darius. After Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, I think Darius is a pretty cool name. I don't know. It was easier to spell when I was typing it out, so I like Darius. And here's what happens. Darius decides he's going to rule in a different way. What he's going to do is he's going to establish like 120 governors over all the people. And those 120 governors, they're going to report to three guys. And one of those three guys is Daniel. Now Daniel's one of three, but what happens is what always seems to happen when God's influence is on someone and they live in this authentic, humble, faithful way. Daniel, his stature gets raised and he's now really kind of the second most powerful man in the entire kingdom, even above the other two and especially above the other 120 And so the other people are jealous about this. The other people in leadership, they're jealous about Daniel and his position and his authority and his influence. And so they decide, how are we going to trap him? How are we gonna get Darius to kind of recognize that Daniel needs to go? And so they decide in Christian persecution that they're going to find something that's specifically connected to his faith to try to find him to be guilty of. And you can read that for yourself in in, uh, Daniel chapter six and seven. And so what they do, As they say, hey, Darius, we've all agreed on this. We think this would be best because we know the people and we know the things that they're doing. And so here's what you need to know. I think what you should do is anybody that prays to any deity, any uh, being, any faith thing, anybody that prays to anybody other than you, they should be put into the, the den of lions. And Darius says, well, I mean, if that's what the people want, then I guess that's what we should do. And then we read this interesting thing in Daniel chapter 6, I believe it's in verse 10, where it says that Daniel then went up into his upper chamber. He went kind of upstairs in his house, and the windows are opened up, and it's facing Jerusalem, kind of his homeland. And it says that he does as he always had done. Three times every day, he bows down and he prays. Now, it's interesting to me that a lot of people would have heard that decree, and they would have started praying, just to prove a point. But Daniel did what he had always done. It was his faithfulness that delivered him to that moment to be used by God to bring about change. It's really the reason that his faithfulness, we're going to see here in just a second, had made an impression on King Darius. And so the people that hear Daniel praying, because they knew he did, that's why they set him up they heard him praying out of the window and they go to Darius and they say, didn't, didn't you establish this law? Like, I think I remember, didn't, it was in the paper the other day. Didn't you establish this law where anybody that's praying, like they should be thrown into the den of lions. And he's like, yeah, I remember doing that. I I think you guys actually talked me into that. And, and they're like, okay, well, you need to know that Daniel, like, you know, your favorite son, your guy that you really love, the guy you kind of elevated, like he's doing that. So you need to throw him into the den of lions. And we read, and I've never read this until last week when I was kind of putting some of this together before this week, I had never read it like this. The king actually struggled with the idea that he had to enforce the punishment on Daniel that he was gonna have to enforce. He tried to come up with a way to get out of it. Evidently, there was a relationship here that we aren't really exposed to, but there's something there where the king kind of wrestles with this whole idea of what he's about to have to do. And then, right before he throws Daniel into the lion's den, look at this in chapter 6, verse 16. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. There was something evidently about Daniel's faithfulness up to that point that had made an impression on the heart of Darius so that even though he had to enforce punishment for disobedience, even in the face of the persecution that Daniel was facing, that Darius said, listen, I've watched the way that you live, and I hope you're right. I hope that everything you say you believe is true. Do you have any unbeliever in your life who could say that about you? Do I have anybody in my life who is not a believer but says, "Listen, by the way that you live, by the way that you conduct yourself, by the humility that you walk in, by the faithfulness that you exhibit even in the face of adversity, I hope you're right." I hope that your God will deliver you. And here's how I take what I take away from that. Authentic faithful submission produces favor with those over us. You want to get in good favor with your boss? Be the best employee they have. You're a Christian you should be. Right? Like students, you want teachers that don't hate you or whatever? Be a great student. Show up on time. Do your homework. Study for tests. If you say you're a Christian, you should be. Authentic, faithful submission produces favor with those over us. In the New Testament, there's this ornery little passage that I come to. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what I read in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. I'm going to read that one more time before I go on. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There's a lot of places in scripture that call for a lot of different responses to those who are trying to oppress or persecute or punish those of faith. But here in this passage, it says, listen, for the Lord's sake, just submit to them just submit to them. See if there's a way to compromise with authority without compromising yourself. See if it calls for you to stand up, but to do so in a way that says you are leaning on the heavenly authority rather than the earthly authority. See if there's a way that even in the way, like Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar bad news. Like he was like, hey, yeah, your dream, your second dream, like here's what it means. Like you're going to, be put out to pasture and you're going to literally eat grass and you're going to like not be king anymore. And he did it in such a way that at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar was like, thank you so much. (laughs) Like, I know that was difficult for you. Like, don't, don't be alarmed. Like, tell me what you got to tell me. Like, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. (laughs) When I give people bad news, they want to punch me, right? Live in such a way that your authentic, humble faithfulness causes them to go. No, no, no. There's something different about you. I hope you're right. Like, I can't keep talking nonsense because you just continue to live in humility. You just continue to submit to authority. You just continue to show up on time and leave on time and do good work and do your homework and reconcile the bills. Like, you just continue to live in such a way that I go, you know what? I, I hope you're right there's a lot of different places in scripture where a lot of different responses are called for faithful christianity doesn't get headlines we know that like of all the people that are just living quiet humble faithful lives for god like that doesn't get headlines the people that run to the cameras have created this caricature of christianity Mm -hmm like it's this overblown like odd sized the head's bigger than the body and it doesn't seem to work and we're picketing this and protesting this and like we don't like Disney and we don't like this and like what? Like we don't we we going to we're boycotting this thing now and we're going to go do this and we're going to go do that and no no you need to stand for this and you need if you don't stand for this you're not a believer and if you don't vote this way you're not a christian and if you don't do this and you What? Where is that? What, what book is that in, in Scripture? And so then I'm just left to go back to Scripture. And earlier this week, my brother, I have a younger brother. He wrote something that was so challenging to me. We had talked about it for several days. He wrote it in response to something that was taking place there in the community where he was living. And this is what he wrote. The response of the church to the sin in the world should be as different as the people that make up the body of Christ. Once we expect everyone to respond with the same vigor and volume, we negate the examples of diversity provided in Scripture. Biblical examples of how to respond to a sinful society show us that God's strategy for influencing culture doesn't always involve martyrs and war. While Daniel refused to eat the king's food, Esther slept in his bed. It's okay to sound like John the Baptist, just don't be angry when you're beheaded by the people you're shouting at. It's easy to mistake silence for compromise, but Joseph... Esther and Nehemiah weren't any less Christian because they were likable. They disguised their faith with hard work and beauty and people skills and humility and respect, and they were given the platform to influence nations. As long as our rhetoric is filled with war references, other people will always be the enemy and the job of religious leaders will be to muster their best William Wallace impression to rally the troops. Joshua and Gideon and David were called by God to lead armies. But Jesus told Peter to put his sword down. I'm not saying there's never a time to speak up, but if we're outraged over every public outrage, it's not really outrage, it's just anger. Sadly, the taste of blood and the sensation of war drives Christians to pick up the sword when possibly God's weapon of choice for them is a textbook at a local university or a successful career in politics or finance. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he said that we are Christ's ambassadors with the good news of reconciliation. A quiet, faithful relationship with God will always provide more influence in the long run. But a soapbox makes me feel better now. Now, that's his opinion. That quiet faithfulness with God always provides more influence in the long run. Author Alex McFarland he provides another approach. And he says that there are times when we are called to disobey authority. And he says that some of those times are when we are threatened with our ability to worship. When we are threatened to communicate the gospel or not to be able to communicate the gospel. Or when we need to stand up for the rights of those under oppression. That's his opinion based on scripture. And I think both of these different things kind of represent the tension that believers live in related to the public square. Unfortunately, we are a part, for those that are Christians, of a kingdom that is not of this world, and yet we live under the rule of earthly kingdoms. And so as we're wrestling with what to do and when to do it, when we're trying to determine when to speak up or when to shut up when we're trying to determine when to continue on our way or when to compromise within the system without compromising ourselves, I would give you two challenges today, two things that I think we all should look to anytime we are in the public square and we are being pulled into a debate over some issue where the public square is the platform for faith and politics. The first of those is this, pray for discernment. Discernment's a fancy word, and really what it means is to determine something. When there's no absolute right answer specifically without kind of really digging into it, it's trying to determine what is right. Pray for discernment and ask God for clarity on when to speak up, when to shut up, and when to stand up pray for discernment and the second that I would say is to speak with God's voice not your own I'm not saying to speak and say this is the voice of God I'm saying God every time I open your my mouth let your words come out because when it's my words they tend to be divisive but when it's your words it tends to be about reconciliation and so God help me to speak with your voice and not my own pray for discernment and seek to speak with god's voice and not our own i hope that you hear me today that there are times when we should work within the systems of this earth and doing so does not make you any less a follower of jesus christ There are also times when we have to take a stand and say, no, there's no way that I can do what you've asked me to do and continue claiming to be a follower of Christ. There are other times when we need to just let God speak through us so that people of influence around us would recognize that the faithfulness that we have claimed and the humility with which we trade on is actually of God and not something we conjure up. So anytime you get pulled into discussions that seem bigger than you, Pray for discernment and seek to speak with God's voice and not your own. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would help all of us to understand that we are not just Christians. For those that call that title, for those that say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not just Christians. We are a part of a larger community of people. We represent those people and we represent you and we represent your word. And so God, help us to have enough discernment to know when we should speak up and when we should keep our mouth shut. God, let us not get pulled into the caricature that is Christianity in the public square so often. Let us live lives in such a way that the people around us redefine Christianity because of the way we live on our jobs and in our homes and in our schools. God, help us to live in such a way that it reflects you in an incredibly grace-filled way. And God, when we do feel like you're calling us to speak up, let us not just give our opinions, but let us stand on the truth of heavenly authority and speak with the wisdom that comes from you to deliver words of reconciliation in a world that is so divided. God, help us as a church, help us as a people to help those in this community know that God is love and that God loves them. In Jesus' name I pray.